For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. These are challenging times, and we respect your unwavering commitment to your students. At Amplify, we are working especially hard to support you. And as we all grapple with what it means to focus on the science of reading in a new world of remote learning, we're committed to walking with you through the unknown. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. Join us as we talk with experts to explore what it takes to develop joyful, confident, and capable readers. I couldn't be more honored to host David and Meredith Lieben on today's episode. Both are nationally recognized reading experts who have worked very hard getting instructional materials right and ensuring that teachers have the knowledge they need to help students succeed. Today, we specifically focus on the word recognition side of the simple view of reading, talking about what kids need and what to do when they have unfinished learning. They share openly about their experiences and introduce us to their new book, Know Better, Do Better. Such a fun conversation, and I know you'll appreciate it as much as I did. David and Meredith Lieben, it's such an honor to have you as guests on our podcast today. And we always like to start by asking our guests to talk a little bit about your journey. How did you end up being experts in the early literacy world? So I don't know who wants to go first, David or Meredith, but we'd love to hear your story. This is Meredith. I'll start. Um, We started our reading journey by being extremely inexpert. Um, We were both middle school teachers when we first started collaborating and working together. And out of that experience, very much wanted um, to start a school that gave, gave children a coherent education and did that from the ground up. And so we wanted to start with kindergarten so that students who came to the school and their families had a positive experience of, what, of how powerful school could be from the beginning. And um, we thought of almost everything except literacy. And we started at school in the height of, of the whole language movement. And as, as middle school educators, we, we immersed ourselves in that. It, it actually made intuitive sense to us. And it was, it was not a successful approach for the children we were working with. Their parents were happy with the school, happy with the services, but dismayed by 
the lack of progress, as we were, the lack of progress their students were making in in breaking the code and attaining literacy, it, with even with tons of beautiful experiences around read aloud, environmental print experiences, and and rich classroom experiences. It, it was a, it was not a charter school. It was a public school in Harlem, and as a result of our ignorance. We managed to achieve the lowest reading scores that year in the city of, when our children reached the second grade to reach, get the lowest reading scores in the city of New York, which, as I've said, is really impressive. There's 1.2 million children in the city of New York and over 1,000 schools. So to get the lowest reading scores in the school in the city is, is not an easy thing to do. But we did, and we, we knew we were going on the wrong track, and one day when uh, we were working with a psychologist, because I guess that's what you do, you know, when you get the lowest scores in the city of New York, you see a psychologist. Um, But actually, it was um, a psychologist we were working with uh, on school matters. And, but she happened to have a book, right, uh, on the the, uh, table by the couch where we were talking uh, that was beginning to read by Marilyn Adams. Which had just been published. And I decided to read that book which was a long, you know, it's about 300 pages and it's fairly dense. Um, yeah. But I have a degree in psychology and I, my favorite course probably in all of my undergraduate years was experimental psychology and Marilyn was an experimental psychologist. I did not have that background, so I had to read the book twice since I was teaching oh, no. in the early classrooms. <laughs> so we absorbed it as deeply as we possibly could. And we understood then clearly that it is not a magic mystery how the brain learns to read an alphabetic language. There's tons known about it, and we were not at that point applying any of that to our children's experience in school. So we we embarked on a radical overhaul. And we developed our own foundational skills program that was systematic phonics, and there was nothing like core knowledge language arts or any of the other programs around at that point. We used a book called Recipe for Reading, which is still published. Um, We used a series of workbooks called Educators from Educators Publishing Service, EPS, Explode the Code. And our teachers working with, with me, we developed lessons systematically. We had decodable readers, which were also not like some of the decodable readers now, such as your guys or other ones that are really good. They were pretty much straightforward, cat in a hat, pigs doing jigs and so forth. They were the Merrill readers, which were, which were dry as dust, but, are, but delighted our children once they started reading them, and which was illuminating. So we yeah. had a systematic phonics program. We had practice exercises um, through the workbook series. We had decodable readers. Kids were grouped. Some kids moved much faster through the scope and sequence than others. And that started to turn, that definitively started to turn things around. Then in second grade, based very much on Tim Brzezinski's work, but also we we gave it a flavor, we developed a very carefully sequenced and intensive fluency program for all students. Although some kids were still ahead of others, even in the beginning, even in the middle of second grade, Uh, We developed a very strong fluency program. We had what we called a fluency packet, where students got something to take home every night that was grade-level text. After a while, it actually became more than grade-level text. 
And they read that to them. They read that to their parents. Well, first they read it in school until the point where they got pretty much automatic, you know, with choral reading, with echo reading, etc. Then he took it home every single night, read it to their parents. We were not expecting the parents to teach them, but you can recognize what's fluent reading and what's not. And they read that every night during the week. And at the end of the week, every student was called up to perform, beginning in Wednesday or so, where the kids who were, you know, quicker would read that that out loud um, and then get, of course, a standing ovation from the rest of the class. And then by Friday, the students who needed more time, they would also read it to the rest of the class. And that was our fluency packet. And I, I think it was safe to say we had virtually, by the end of second grade, every student was fluent. Now, that doesn't mean every student was ready to pass the reading test because there's, you know, fluency does not guarantee comprehension, although lack of fluency pretty much guarantees lack of comprehension. And so the combination of the fluency packet, the systematic phonics program, and I think I'm missing we, something. Well, we didn't ever give up on, um, we, were, we were all invested in reading aloud. We read aloud, we had an extended school day, and we asked teachers to spend, across the school day, spend about 45 minutes a day reading aloud chapter books, informational text, picture books, just beautiful, beautiful literature and nonfiction to the students. So we didn't, we believed in that from our own experiences as parents and teachers. We believed in that aspect of whole language. Um, we kept using uh, really, really valuable diagnostics like invented spelling to see, you know, taught, we all worked together to learn how to use um, the kids' progressive spelling through invented spelling as diagnostics, and um, and we focused relentlessly on on making sure we eradicated the errors we had started with and caught up that first cohort of children and made sure everybody else had really strong uh, beginnings to reading. So we we worked on both the knowledge and comprehension side and the decoding and learning about the code side, encoding and decoding. And, and, and that also grew vocabulary, which is really important. Right. Can I ask you a quick question? What year was it that you started doing this? We founded the school in 1990. And um, okay. so those were that kindergarten and first grade year were when we were mired in whole language. And again, reading out loud a lot. Kids were journaling and yep. um, doing all those things. I was trained in uh, at Lehman College in the Readers and Writers Project, so uh, I brought those those practices to bear. Um, well, we're in 91, 92. Right, and so we, our, our first cohort, we started with only a kindergarten, and, and the school grew up under those, those senior Got kids. It. So they were yep. actually the last, in second grade, they were the last cohort of students to take a reading test in second grade. So they tested alone in second grade. That was the year that we achieved this incredible, devastating milestone of getting the lowest scores. But they tested alone again in third grade. So we had we worked really hard with those children and then we're also putting solid practices in place K-1-2 under them because of our painful learning. And um, right. parents, their credit, were willing, they stuck it out with us. We invested heavily in repairing the mistakes we had made to that first cohort and being as preventative as possible and, um, and vigorous as possible to make sure that the students coming up after them had a great foundation and, um, and yeah. pretty much got a solid reading program by the time those oldest kids were in third grade. 
Something else that we did, that we left out that I think is extremely important. Some kids move, kids move much. Some kids move much faster than others in learning the alphabetic principle and in be, being able to decode with accuracy and automaticity. And so we differentiated, and we had three groups in every class. And this was this was an effort because all our teachers, the only thing they knew was whole language because that's what everybody was doing then. And sure. they, you know, some kids moved much faster than others, and I would say. By the end of, correct me if I'm wrong, Meredith, by the end of first grade, the group that moved the fastest was done with the decodable readers and was reading um, trade literature along the lines of Frog and Toad. And by, certainly by the middle of second grade, everybody was reading trade literature. So I'm going to add to that. One of the things I think none of us are talking about enough in, in the recent wave of interest around foundational reading and the science of reading is the structural components that either propel towards success in a coherent way or uh, work against it. And um, we, because it was a school we had started and had a, a lot of autonomy in the, the, the uh, New York City district system, uh, there was a, we had alternative schools in our district, so we, there was lots of autonomy. We scheduled and programmed around what mattered most in the school. And so that was literacy attainment. And so we used our Title I money to make class size smaller in first grade. And we scheduled reading around our, we had a reading specialist by that point who pushed in first in K, then in first grade, then in second, we scheduled reading periods so that the entire grade had reading at the same time. So with first grade, we had three teachers plus the reading specialist plus some paras, so we could break down class size, and kids had small group instruction. They also had independent practice time, but they spent a lot of time with teachers in those reading groups, and so we could have across a grade, not just three three groups per class, but six or seven or eight groups across a grade, so we could really move kids as they progressed and, and support kids as they, were, as they needed, and the most experienced teachers worked with the students who needed more iterations and more uh, skilled work to break the code. Um, so that was part of the reason there was this fluid success once we figured that out. So I think a school deciding what matters most and programming against it and, and staying yeah. coherent and on message is an under-exploited um, source of energy and for kids' achievement that we don't talk about enough. It, great materials matter, great teaching matters, but a school that is aligned around what matters most and not the convenience of the lunch schedule or, or who has room in the gym, I mean, those things matter too. But, but you always build a school schedule and school priorities around something, and I think if, if schools started to really question that and, and come together in that conversation too, it would help jet propel us now. Super important, even though I really liked gym when I was in school. Um, <laughs> we had gym. We had three recesses a day. I, I think that's really important, and we talk about this in our book. One of the one of the re- resistances to to part of the resistance rather to systematic phonics is that some kids some kids need very little of it, and some kids move very fast. And right. if you don't, and that's true in any environment. And if if you don't differentiate along the lines of what Meredith just described then you, you, you make that a bigger problem than it needs to be.
Yeah, and by your book, we're talking about Know Better, Do Better, recently published. And for our listeners, we'll link them in the show notes to that book. Before we jump into that, I'm really curious. Many of our listeners know you, David and Meredith, both as instrumental in both the Common Core State Standards and then Student Achievement Partners. How did you jump from this school, digging in problem solving around student literacy needs, to being experts in the field? Oh, that's easy. It was not easy. (laughs) Well, it's easy to explain. Um, Our reading scores went up. They went up. Not they went up because we we resolved this issue with foundational skills, but they also went up because we realized that our children did not have enough background knowledge and enough vocabulary to succeed with reading grade level material regularly and proficiently. So we we devised our own what we called general knowledge curriculum, and the way we did that was I took a look at Zeno's. I we bought actually Zeno's word frequency book. This was so long ago, nothing was online. And I looked at the most frequent words that appear in texts at second grade, third grade, and fourth grade. And essentially, we can, um, I aggregated those into topics. And we, you know, so the topics that are most common and are animals and weather and heroes and so forth. And we made a list of general, essentially a sequence of general knowledge topics. And we developed lessons on those topics that incorporated reading aloud and texts that we got. It was the beginning of the online era, but you could still get texts. And that, um, that was our general knowledge curriculum, which has actually been, um, is now in place in some ways with ReadWorks. ReadWorks was first developed by Meredith based on that curriculum way back in the, uh, very few people know that. Um, So the combination of growing knowledge, which as you know is important, growing vocabulary, we got a really significant jump in reading scores over the years. It still takes time. Nobody turns around everything in one year. And we got a call from someone working with the Chancellor of the City of New York who said, would you you be willing to speak to the K-8 teachers in the city? Principals. Principles and I said no. Um, I can't do anything in forty-five minutes. Uh, this this person was pretty persistent, and he came to our school. He spent days, a couple of days in our school, um, and he talked. We talked a lot together about what we were doing, and that was David Coleman, one of the uh, uh-huh. architects of the Common Core Standards. And so, ever since that time, which would have been nineteen ninety-five or nineteen ninety-six. We worked with David, and so when he um, became, when the standards came along, he contacted us right away. I would say I remember the day pretty clearly, and we had we we are not the writers of the standards. We helped; we were there, but we were not the writers. Um, Meredith's job was to organize a group of computational linguists and cognitive scientists to develop the complexity, um, the, the staircase of complexity, to lead to. to college and career, and I synthesized the research that went into Appendix A. So then when the standards were approved, David created um, Student Achievement Partners, and we've been working with them ever ever since the beginning. Wow, that's amazing. And I can't imagine, well, probably lots of frustration there too, but you you like went from practitioners to 
digging into this stuff in a different dimension. You must have learned a ton. Yes, I think I just going back to David's story about Zeno's word frequency guide, what that is, is it takes, I can't remember how he developed a, a corpus, a corpora of all the books commonly read in classrooms, in American classrooms from kindergarten through, I think it goes to 12th grade. 12th grade. And David, that reverse engineering happened on notepads, <laughs> legal pads, spread all over our apartment. And David did them all by hand, pulling out words, you know, that had, you know, working backwards down to a frequency of, I don't know, 30 words per million showing up in print in, in every grade of elementary school. And then we looked at, we said, okay, so what, what should third graders hear and study and learn about that will position them well to understand the books they're likely to encounter in fourth grade and so on. So it was reverse engineered on these legal pads all summer. It's what David did for fun. And then he figured out these sort of topics that the words seemed to group themselves in. And and then I, I also don't want to um, underestimate the power of a library. Again, it wasn't in our original model of the Family Academy. We had an extended year, an extended day, and lots of enrichment for the kids. But we also realized that a, a robust library and very good professional children's librarians needed to be at the heart of our school. And so investing in the collection, the library collection, and people who could deliver to teachers, they were extraordinary. So if we were starting a topic on, I don't know, the Inca or something in third grade, we would meet with the librarians and, and teacher, uh, that teacher would have posters and maps and books to read aloud and books for, for students to read and videos on their desk a couple days later to, to, to immerse their class in a study of the Inca or whatever the wow. it was on our topics. So, um, but, but yes, they, they were influenced by Zeno's word frequency guide because we knew that would be high leverage payoff had been proved sure. out by decades through, this, through Zeno having done his work. It's also tough to yeah. pick the topics you know, what topics, what topics do you pick? Yeah, we, we firmly believe that the best way to learn about the world is to study about the world. And we also firmly believe, based on research, that's the best way to grow vocabulary, when you stay on a topic and learn about a topic. But sometimes people argue about which topic should you pick. I mean, the research is it really doesn't matter which topic you pick, but people have values that they want reflected. So uh, it was kind of neutral uh, to some extent to say, well, these topics are based on what, the, what is in the books that third graders read, what in the books that fourth graders read. So that, that, helped, uh, that helped with that issue as well. And we paid a lot of attention to who our students were. We wanted them to learn, you know, we wanted them to read books and topics that mirrored their own histories and, and, own, and cultures to some extent and to learn about the world that was beyond their doors. And, and experiences. So we did, it was a both and in designing those topics. <clears throat> so you were really doing what we call the science of reading, the simple view of reading, both the language comprehension, knowledge building, vocabulary building, as well as doing word recognition fluency side of the house. Yeah, but I would add one, that's true, but I would add one thing. We also were reading grade level text. Beginning in, yeah. the, beginning in the third grade every day, for 40 minutes a day, students picked apart one complex grade-level text, analyzed it carefully, answered, regardless of what reading level they were at, um, 
analyzed it. Basically, it was close reading, but we called it textual analysis. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Certainly the first time David Coleman saw it with children who were not students at Cambridge. Yeah, so from that, we have a little legacy in this book called Know Better, Do Better. How did that book come to be? Why did you feel like it was important to write? Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I think one of, the, one of the reasons is we felt that if you, if you follow the science of reading, it's really not overwhelming what you have to do. Now, don't get me wrong. It, it's much easier to have a program than it is to create your own program. But that, that being the case, you could still do your own work that follows the science of reading. And not only will it adhere to the science of reading, but it can be intellectually meaningful and fun. The, the idea that phonics does, does not, cannot be fun is patently absurd. Anything can be made into fun. Well, I don't know, close reading is intense and can be interesting. I'm not sure it'll ever turn into actual fun. It's intellectually um, stimulating. Right. Yeah. Um, but phonics can most definitively become fun and become engaging. In the very, I don't know if it's the first chapter where we talk about a series of talks in one class where one, one little boy was very upset that he had to work so hard to master short vowel sounds, and all of a sudden with long vowel, now A is making a whole different sound. He was really, he was really upset by that, didn't believe his teacher, and felt that he had to go speak to the principal, Mr. Lieben, to see what was going on here. And he, so he took the class lawyer with him and presented his case, and I presented a series of talks to, the, to that first grade class on essentially Phoenicia and the evolution of an alphabetic principle. But that could be done with a lot of things. The, the, a lot of the point of the book was that phonics can be fun, phonics can be meaningful, and phonics can be interesting. And I'm talking about systematic phonics because another thing, and we talk about this, I think, I think we did a very good job of the evolution of whole language, balance, literacy, systematic phonics. And part of the resistance is teachers get confused. They say, well, I do phonics, or I talk about this, or I talk about that. Well, the research from the National Reading Panel is not about phonics. It's about systematic phonics. And it says it repeatedly throughout that, throughout that text. And we wanted to make that difference clear. And we wanted to make, as I said, that teaching reading in the early grades with foundational skills can be intellectually meaningful and fun. And... I, I, and I think also there were two other ingredients to that is kids are, I, we don't, I don't know that I've ever met a young, a young child who didn't understand that he, he or she came to school first and foremost to learn to read. So that feels like a, a you know, that was a, a promise or a contract we did not fulfill for our first kids until later. We did, we did manage to catch them up, but that, there is an expectation and an excitement around learning to read that is, um, there's a joy in that, in the intellectual work of learning how this, how this alphabetic language is represented on, on the, in, the, in written form that is innately satisfying, I think, to anybody who's curious, which I firmly believe humans are hardwired to be curious and to be learners. The other thing we, we did... Um, is we paid a lot of attention to morphology and how interesting and fun words are. Um, we started teaching um, Latin roots in fifth grade and then actually had Latin as our language in the middle school because 
Um, we'll get to that, but we, we kept inheriting students who didn't, hadn't had as um, positive an experience in their early years that we, we were obligated to catch up. So our kids, you know, we taught them to be interested by words and curious about words. And I, I do believe that, you know, the encoding of English is only rational when you look at mor- morphology because meaning and spelling patterns are carried through the origins of words. That's where that's where spelling in English is actually very regular, where phonic patterns can be baffling because so many streams feed into the river that, that became English. And we love that too because our kids came from all over. So the idea that the language they were, we were all focused on together had an equally complex lineage as the United States itself was a was a cool feature. You know, we we saw it as as a, a feature, not a bug, of English. So we wanted we wanted kids to be interested and engaged by that in a very clear and direct way. Hmm, yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's you know, David, your story about going in and teaching first grade kids. I think sometimes we think it's going to be boring and project that onto students when actually that's not true from their point of view. The subtitle of this book is Teaching a Foundation So Every Child Can Read. I know we're going to focus a bit on the end of the book, but can you give us just a quick high level of the chapters you've included prior? Well, we had the the introduction told the story of our school. And then we had chapters that talked about what is systematic phonics and then how do you teach systematic phonics and also what is the difference between whole language, balanced literacy and systematic phonics. And as I said earlier, what was what was the history behind that? Um, How did we get to whole language and when whole language didn't wasn't working, how did we um, how was that, I guess, how, how did the country come to make some attempt, you know, get to the National Reading Panel? I guess it's a history of the reading wars. Um, interwoven into the book is a history of the reading wars with the leading to balanced literacy and an assessment that balanced literacy as it's currently practiced does not include systematic phonics. And that's why it has not worked with so many kids who, who need that kind of support. And then it went from that to fluency. There's a, a very important chapter on what is fluency, how do you teach fluency. Um, and we were influenced, as I said earlier, to a great extent by work by Tim Rosinski. And then I think after the fluency chapter was the, the last chapter was, well, what do we do with children who are older students now and are still very far behind? And that was chapter seven. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I was reading through this book, the way you've woven in the history and really made it very practical at the same time. You're talking about what it is that kids need to have to learn to become readers so they can be successful in all of their schooling career and life. And I found it really accessible. I felt like the narrative was super helpful and you were very careful to use examples from your actual work with that. What was it like for the two of you as you were writing it together, you know, thinking about what you did and how to represent this then for the folks reading? Well, I'll start off by saying that we were idiots. Um, <laughs> we, you know, um, and fairly, fairly intelligent people with a lot of experience could still make really stupid mistakes. Um, we did not give ourselves enough time to, read, to write this book. 
the publisher had a deadline. They they kept they kept after us, and we kept ignoring them. So we actually had to write this book in a much shorter period of time than we should have given it. Um, our next book, we will not make that mistake, and that would be that was definitely part of the experience. I think the other part of the experience was that it was fun to go back, especially going back into 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 what we did with the school because it's been a while now. This you know we went through the fires of this learning process roughly from '93 to '96. So to go back and write about it, that that was that was definitely fun and interesting. I think it was fun to um, give the book to people, to readers, to give us feedback. I think that was enjoyable. I, I think it was also um, interesting and rewarding. We really made an effort to keep this so that just about anybody could read it. Um, you know, and a motivated, educated parent could read this and understand the history of the situation with the science of reading and why we're at where we are now. Kind of similar in a way to Natalie Wexler's book about knowledge. Um, knowledge gap. And we wanted, we wanted something like that for foundational skills. And I think we may be the only book like that that could put in anybody's hand, really, who's interested in this, to, to see what's the history of this with the science of reading. And I th- we also really wanted to have a, a lively voice, so it was narrative. And, and, and I, one thing I feel like we did achieve is it's, it's hard to tell what chapters I wrote, which chapters David, because we, we came up, you know, we, we, we went through with rewrites to, to sort of make sure it was lively and that we fused our voices. I just re- I recently saw a reference on uh, that, that da- I hear David Lieben in the book because David has such a unique voice. Um, so that's so I feel good about that. that we, we really achieved uh, a lively voice, I think. And that takes yeah, work. I, we don't have the same writing styles. We do not. <laughs> and you're still together. So like, that's a thing, right? <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about chapter seven. And you intentionally included that chapter. And it addresses what you called unfinished learning, which I love that. I love that phrase. Talk a little bit about why you thought it was important to include and then what the chapter is about. So, yeah, unfinished yeah, learning around reading for sure, because in a lot of ways we're all, hopefully all our, all our learning is unfinished. But we, we, we definitely wanted, we wanted to acknowledge the heavy load that is on children, students as they get older and teachers when they, they did not get what they needed on time. Um, so that they could have all the years and benefit and enjoyment of reading. It's real. It's still epidemic in our country. It's, it's an issue. And so until we get everything right in the lower grades, uh, we need to keep being mindful and, and supporting students when they're older. So this, again, arose from our, our own direct teaching and, and um, school experience. We, we would inherit students when they were older who, who, as I said before, were not taught to read well. So we needed to catch them up. So we learned a lot doing that. The Probably the biggest pivot point was when um, our first cohort got to sixth grade and middle school size, class size increases a lot in New York City. Yeah. So we inherited yep. actually over 20 new, new students at once. And um, they were not, they were not, for the most part, uh, they were students who hadn't been accepted by other middle schools. So you know, we took we took them. Uh, they were mostly neighborhood kids, which was always our mandate, and we had to work hard to catch them up. So we had to figure out how to do fluency and how to 
to go back and figure out what they were missing in terms of all kinds of knowledge of, of how the code works. Um, we, when we relocated to Vermont for a variety of reasons, I, I spent six years teaching high school students in a career in tech ed center, and, and I was um, shocked at, at how many of those students had not been taught well, even in the small class size and you know lovely villages of Vermont. And so I was again uh, really supported in that school to to work and pounce on a reading fluency, um, even with 17 and 18 year olds. So we've seen this all over in rural areas and urban areas. Um, it seemed you know we've not met teachers who haven't struggled with this. So it felt terribly important to address. Um, how these things can play out for older students. Yeah, so this chapter talks a lot about fluency. So David, to your point, it's sort of an extension of the chapter before where you talk about fluency, but this one is like actually using, explicitly using fluency to help these students. Yeah, fluency is definitely a template that runs throughout the chapter. And with some, with, with some students, if you really hammer in on fluency with grade level text, then you're going to get them to where they need to be. But there are some students who still need more than fluency. And that's where it gets really difficult. Because you can't go back and start giving them a, I don't believe you can go back and give them a, a systematic phonics program similar to what you would give to a first grader or, or a second grader. Because first of all, they're kind of alienated from reading to begin with. Second sure. of all, related to number one, they know that that's not really reading. So you, 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 have to, you have to do it through fluency. And what chapter seven tries to do is embed phonics lessons throughout, throughout work with a fluent text. So you preferably take a text from students tier one instruction, if you're doing tier, if it's a tier two remediation or if you're working in a classroom as tier one to use a text that is grade level that the students need for their, need to read for their instruction. You embed the fluency activities that we talk about in the fluency chapter, um, choral reading, echo reading, buddy reading, etc. But you also start dropping in some phonics lessons. So you see, okay, I see an O-U-G-H pattern here. Um, and then in as fast and snappy and game-like way as you can, find, turn to your partner, find all the other words in this text that have the O-U-G-H. As soon as you've got them, make a list. And as soon as I look at it, read it to each other, see who can read all of those words the quickest. So you make it snappy, you make it as game-like and make it as fun-like possible and embed it in the text itself rather than a series of extraneous workbook exercises. And I'm not one of these people who thinks that if you use a workbook, you will go to hell because we don't have any research to that effect as of yet. <laughs> I, I do believe you'll get more bang for the buck with older students if you embed it in real text that they're reading that's important for them to read and they know it's not dumbed down text. So chapter seven tries to incorporate all that with a recognition that it's not easy. I think we're also... Part of our value is is we're really pragmatic, and teachers teachers have an, you know they have content to teach in the upper grades that that and they need to they need to transmit that content whatever their obligation is whatever their subject matter is um, they there's an urgency and um, for both students and teachers to to stick to that so so that's why we emphasize using for both 
from both the student and the teacher perspective, use the materials that you're obligated to use that you you want to convey and and students want to you know want to absorb and learn. Ha- have it be about that. Um, we'd love to see that same kind of coherence I was talking about, sort of deliberate school mindfulness around scheduling. I also think there's yeah. a lot of opportunities left on the table for support personnel in the upper grades to use the the stuff, the content of the classroom to, when, when students are pulled out, have it be coherent so students don't have this horrible dislocating experience of doing X over here with a reading specialist while, while missing core content. Why can't the reading specialist work with the core t- content to do whatever repairs or supplements or, or um, extra iterations that student needs to, to start to catch up. Everybody would feel better about it, and you'd have less dislocating uh, for, the, for the student uh, of what school means. It sounds a little bit like giving, well, not a little bit like it actually is allowing students to have access to those grade level texts and then providing the scaffolding they need to be successful. Right. And, and like implementing the standards themselves, students all deserve access. So it's up to us, the adults, people who make materials for teachers to use and the teachers themselves to figure out how that ac- what that access looks like for every student. That's hard work, but it's, it is the work of, of teaching students in the 21st century and teaching all students so they can, they can have college and career-ready skills and knowledge when they, when they complete their, their free public education. I just love your, I mean, you said the word pragmatic, but I really do love that pragmatic approach that the advice you give and you offer, particularly through this book, really gets right down to the classroom to help support teachers and that work that they have to do every single day. So we've been going about 40 minutes, so it feels like a good place to wrap things up. And before we close out, I would like for each of you to share with our listeners the one or two maybe most important things you want folks to remember as they're trying to do this hard work. Well, I think the hardest, the hardest of the hard work, I, I think teaching is just the hardest thing there is. Um, and I've been a teacher, I've been a principal, and I've been a consultant, and nothing holds a candle to the difficulty of teaching. Um, but this work with the upper grade students who are significantly far behind is is the hardest of all. But I think that we know enough now. We we totally know the science of how to help those students. The obstacles are logistical obstacles, political obstacles, and social-emotional obstacles. They're logistical obstacles because those students are going to need more time. If you're going to try to catch them up at later grade levels with just 30 minutes three times a day, three times a week, that's not going to work. And at the high school level, logistical obstacles are even more overwhelming, but they're significant at upper elementary and middle. The social emotional obstacles are those students feel they feel bad about themselves. And it's not enough to just tell them that they're okay and tell them that they can learn to read. They need to understand a little bit about the psychology of reading and why they're in the situation they're in, which is how we recommend beginning this work in, chap- in chapter seven. So there's logistical obstacles, there's um, emotional, there's social emotional obstacles, 
And there's some political obstacles also, especially in the upper grades. Well, do we do we separate the kids? Do we not separate the kids? Can we can we help everybody together? Which I think we can. Um, and I would like think people to think at every level, upper elementary, middle school, and high school. How can we tackle those political, social, emotional, and logistical obstacles? Because the science is already there. We know what it takes to make fluent reading. We know what it takes to make the students who need still more work on decoding to get there. But how can we put together a package to do all of that? And I think Chapter 7 gets you a pretty good start in that direction. But it doesn't, it doesn't overcome those obstacles. It just lays them out for you. And I'll take, I'll take the other end of the spectrum. And you know, students who aren't reading at grade level, it is not through any fault of their own. They're, somewhere along the way, they were not given the, operate, op, the opportunities. They weren't given the, the, num, the, the materials. They weren't given the systematic approach. They weren't given what they weren't. Something didn't click for them. And that was a mismatch that we as a, it's, it's adult responsibility. Like the breakdown happens because adults didn't persist in providing every student what they needed. So the long-term solution is to stop having so many students who pass through without being rock solid, without being automatic, without being fluent readers, so that their brain power can shift to comprehending, to doing the stuff that is so rewarding about reading. And that is to make sure that we are doing the right thing in pre-K through second grade so that students really do the work when they know and we know that should be the focus of school and, and of their school days. So there are great materials out there. You all have one of them. There is a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of opportunity for teachers to build knowledge now. There's a lot of free communities thinking about these things. Parents are anxious, and I think their attention is elevated around this. We must do better for children at the early years of school so that they, their needs are met and their, their reading and literacy base is rock solid so they can, get, they can maximize their learning for all the years they're in school and really have opportunities to pursue whatever futures and lives they want to. Wow, such powerful words from both of you. Again, I just really, really appreciate you being guests on today's episode. And I know our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear all this. Um, we'll link our listeners in the show notes to the book so they can run out and buy it. And thank you so much again for joining us. We're so grateful to our amazing guest today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast, and we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading the Community, or if you're looking to help implement the science of reading, send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert.